From Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Zach. Yeah. We got Joanna back. Yeah. I'm back. You've been drinking tea? Yep. Healthy? Mm-hmm. Feeling good? You yeah. have anything that you drank this week? Yes, yes. I have one thing. What'd you drink? I made penicillins. Because you were sick? Yeah. Did it work? No. How were they? I felt worse. <laughs> they were okay. I my you know, I it they needed some refining. Because the penicillin How? calls for the honey ginger syrup yeah. and I don't have that on hand regularly you know it's why you can never get a good penicillin at the bar which is why it's an over it's never going to be a big cocktail right yeah it is like it is something that often deters me from making it at home so this was the first time i did it um and i made like a quick honey ginger syrup and it was fine um but yeah that is the (laughs) that's the extent i I don't think i've maybe i've had the had one out once before ever but um yeah i don't think i have apart from the stuff that we've been drinking at the office and Issa Rae's VRA Prosecco that's kind of the extent of my drinking this past week because I was I was a little under the weather yeah it's okay yeah it happens to the best of us Mm -hmm. Zach it sure does because I also had strep throat last week so didn't do very much drinking Uh, although if you'd like a breakdown of the various Ricola flavors I'm happy to offer it Uh, (laughs) still still think the classic lemon mint is the best but uh, I like honey lemon no, but I was on Sepacol this Sipacol. past week. It's awful. Yeah. It's horrible, really but it gross. works. <laughs> yeah, it, it is more effective, but less pleasant to oh, consume. So unpleasant, yeah. But I uh, did celebrate my recent recovery by by <laughs> ticking off yet another uh, fresh hot beer for, for the season. Uh, a really interesting, actually, collaboration between Bale Breaker here in, uh, the, in Seattle, actually, well, in, more actually in Yakima, where the brewery and the hop fields are and Russian river brewing. They collabed on a fresh hop beer called the uh, fresh hop friends, which was quite good. A uh, much more austere style than I'm used to really kind of tight, crisp IPA style with, you know, a fair bit of hop on it, but not as kind of fruity as some of the fresh hop beers. And it made me think I'm curious about this too. Cause I know, especially, well, both of you, I think are, are, uh, have tried a number of these. I mean, do beer collabs like do a thing for either of you? Is it not like anymore. interesting? I think they used to for a while. Like, I think in the same way that, like, for most people now, no one gives a shit about bartender guest shifts. Like, no real consumers care. Mm-hmm. Another hot take. Uh, <laughs> I, I think, by the way, we ran a survey and people <laughs> wrote in that they like my hot takes. So I'm going to keep them going. Oh, man. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think that it, in the beginning, they were really useful because it was a way for there to be this community that was built, you know, an established brewery could bring in a brewery they were excited about, put their name alongside theirs with the beer, and people would be like, oh, wow, so Brooklyn Brewery really likes X. And then actually what happened in the reverse was, like, towards the, you know, the height of the cool kid, like, can chasers, whatever, haze boys mm-hmm. movement of, like, the like six or seven years ago, the opposite would happen. And, like, Brooklyn Brewery is like, oh, my God, we got to be relevant again. Let's partner with other half. And then they would do that. Got it. But now I think most people don't care. I feel like my understanding is when those collabs happen, it's because the brewers just really want to do They're it. They're friends. Yeah. But like it's it's yeah, it's like nobody cares anymore. There's no yeah, it's not for any particular reason. Yeah, we threw a really fun collab event like seven six years ago now six years ago now in uh where we like did a bunch of collab beers with uh Japanese brewers 
uh, with some breweries in LA that was really cool. We 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 brewed a beer together with them and Vine Pair and what and like it was fun. But again, it was kind of at the tail end of when people gave a shit about collabs. Got it. I just don't think anybody cares. Mm-hmm. Oh well. <laughs> <clears throat> what have you been drinking, Adam? Well, oh, he's got his phone out. Got my phone out. Well, because it's fall fuckers. Uh, <laughs> on Sunday, Naomi and I like we're like we got to do something. So we walked. We took a long walk and then wound up at Transmitter Brewing. Um, and were we there ha- people there? It was just us. Oh. I feel really bad. That's what it, how it was the last time we were there as well. I like their beers. Me too. I think their beers are great. But mm-hmm. yeah, we were the only. It was me, Naomi, and Esty. Esty. Yeah, and uh, she was in her jean jacket. Real oh. fall. Yeah, and uh, we both had their his rye saison that's made with all new york rye mm-hmm. it was delicious beer yeah like really nice so we had that walked home great and then uh one night last weekend while i watched my auburn tigers get their asses kicked by lsu which just really destroyed my my saturday night <laughs> i had a bottle of uh 2010 chateau hope bailey bordeaux that was just delicious um that we that we had along with alongside chili nice and that was the two things that I drank this week that I was most excited about. No, no real cocktails. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't in the mood for them uh, this week. But you know, probably, probably tonight. Yeah, I have a dinner, and I'll probably oh, you have, have a dinner. Yeah, okay. Yeah, which leads us to our story. Yes, uh, which is uh, new data out of Nielsen, which credits. So we've talked about this a bunch on the podcast, just in terms of wine losing share, et cetera. But this data point to cocktails is like, oh, cocktails are booming everywhere. I think this data point specifically is really interesting. And basically it's new data from Nielsen that is showing that the growth in cocktails can be attributed to growth of cocktail consumption at restaurants. The growth at restaurants outperforms the growth at bars. Yes. And other drinking, specific drinking venues. And I think that is fascinating for a lot of reasons. Um, One, I think... We all have talked about the fact that we go to restaurants and we see more cocktails at people's tables than we see wine. In addition, we have friends and family that tell us they will start at the bar of the restaurant now before going to sit at the table. And we have been pretty critical of restaurants that don't allow you to do that, right? Where you have to have a seat at the bar and you have to actually, you know, it's it's, the bar seats are being held for people to have their meals. Like, because we now see that people want to hit the bar first, then go to their table, maybe hit the bar afterwards as well. Sure. We know people to do that as well. But what I think is also interesting about this is that I think the cocktail world in general, the spirits world, has placed so much more importance on the cocktail bar in terms of the people that push their liquid, that are the place for discovery, et cetera, than on the restaurant cocktail bar. Mm-hmm. And I think they need to shift those priorities. And that's why we give out an award for Next Wave coming out this Thursday. Everyone pay attention. The Next Wave Awards are coming out for best restaurant beverage program where we take the cocktail bar very uh, part of that very seriously. Mm-hmm. Because the amount of discovery that is happening in the cocktail bar, I mean, sorry, at the restaurant in terms of cocktails, I think is more than at the cocktail bar. And... I think we need to be thinking a lot more about how powerful the restaurant is when it comes to its place in cocktail culture. Like, why isn't there not a top 50 for restaurant cocktail bar programs? Right. Well, I think part of this is that a lot of restaurants don't invest the same amount in their beverage yeah. program or in their bar program specifically. So it's like 
plenty of people are going to restaurants and they're selling lots of spirits, but it's just like a very basic, there's no real cocktail program there, right? I mean, we have some of those places in New York, like I think of Manhattan with their amazing bar program. um, And it's a restaurant primarily. But I think that, you know, restaurants for the most part probably don't need to have an exceptional bar program or have like real talent behind the bar because people are going to drink there regardless. They're going to get their, you know, regular go-to cocktails um, versus anything that's on a menu. Oh, I I actually totally disagree with you, Joanna. Okay. I I think that one of the upshots of the craft cocktail movement in the early 2000s was that restaurants eventually kind of coast to coast realized that not only were they perhaps not capturing sales by having a better bar program, but also that a certain kind of restaurant in particular, maybe not your you know neighborhood joint, we've talked about to what extent do those places need to have real cocktail programs. But if we're talking about restaurants with certain ambitions, certain sure. price points, et cetera, that you cannot just say, here's our, you know, our cocktail list has you know, a martini, a Manhattan, an old-fashioned, and a yeah. Cosmo on it or whatever. Like, you have to have not just well-made cocktails, but there has to be – people have to believe they're getting something – House you know, cocktails. That, yeah, and something as as creative and, and inventive as the menu, right? And so if you're going to a place with a very staid kind of uh, predictable menu, then probably the cocktail program will be the same. But it is a bit of a, a discontinuity to go to a restaurant that prizes itself on its food – you know, I don't know if not creativity, but a certain, you know, ever-changing menu, seasonality, etc. If the cocktail program doesn't play into that, I think people do kind of take a step back. And, and I think the expectation is that you have, I mean, it's maybe not a fair expectation. It's a challenging expectation for the industry. But the expectation in a lot of these places now is that everything you offer will have a personal, independent kind of creative touch to it. It can't just be, here's a Negroni. Yeah. Well, I guess it's just like... But then we think when we think about like up and coming bartenders or like star bartenders to the extent star tenders to the extent that we have them. Right. They're never from restaurants or they're very they're not often from restaurants. Right. They're not. And I think that is that's a blind spot that a lot of the industry has. I think for a very long time. Look, it's it, it is it is very similar to. The way wine had blinds has had blind spots as well of who the top talent was. I think that the we've made the same argument for a very long time. The spirits industry and the publications that initially have covered that industry and the awards that are reflected on that industry have looked primarily at high end cocktail bars as the spots where the best talent go to work, where the the most interesting cocktails come out of, mm-hmm. etc. Same is true for the wine professional, for the wine trade, right? That we thought the best psalms are at Michelin star restaurants. When we've said for a long time, there are incredible wine professionals introducing more people to wine, probably at casual, chill spots without certifications than there are at Michelin star places. But all the big brands want to work with the Michelin star sommeliers to say, we have the psalm from 11 Madison Park who's doing a campaign for us. And I think it just proves that, that that this is just a blind spot that we have in our industry. For a very long time, I don't think a lot of people took restaurant cocktails seriously and restaurant cocktail programs. Right. Meaning, like, this isn't a place where you would go to get their original cocktails. If you see an original cocktail menu at a restaurant, order a Negroni. Mm-hmm. Order a Martini. 
don't order what that bartender's created because there's no way that bartender has the skill and know-how to create a delicious cocktail the same way that I'm not picking on them at all. It's just their famous attaboy does, mm-hmm. right? And that, I think, in a lot of places is just not true. Yeah. There are very talented bartenders who maybe because of the pay, the hours, etc., maybe they worked for at some point in time at some of these famed cocktail bars but want to work at a restaurant for other reasons because, you know, we've talked about this in in the past. But, like, there, there are restaurants, uh, Bresca in D.C. Yeah. Like, I think their cocktail program is second to none. But the team there also wanted to be around wine and food. And so that's why – they are there, right. but they have experience at great cocktail bars, everyone behind that bar, but they like being at a Michelin star restaurant making great cocktails. And when you go there, you see a really amazing mix of cocktails and wine being consumed because of that. So I think that, you know, it's just, it's thinking about where the majority of people are going. And I think what also the study proves is that the majority of consumers are still mostly spending their nights out drinking cocktails at restaurants, not at bars. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really an interesting way to talk about how cocktails really did capture the American public's attention and imagination because the exact thing that we're describing, right, the early uh, sort of forays into craft cocktails happened at a lot of, not exclusively, but largely at a lot of these kind of dedicated bars, right, places where you as as a drinks lover would go and have a couple of cocktails even and it would be a part of your night out maybe the beginning maybe the end maybe both maybe it would be you know you would be dining somewhere else or eating at home beforehand or whatever and what the american public as a whole has said is like yeah we like cocktails and also we like going out to eat dinner and we don't necessarily want to have to choose between the two or even change locales to make both of those things happen And it's really interesting because, you know, one of the things that this kind of data makes me think about is, are we going to see a problem start to crop up for cocktail bars that we've talked about and diagnosed with wine bars, which is that if what the what a good chunk of drinkers want is to be able to have the drinks they want in the context of a meal, well... If your wine, if your cocktail bar can isn't doing that, right? You're offering a small amount of food, you know, just kind of snacks or whatever, something simple. Does that kind of take you off the list for a lot of people who would be like, "Oh, I'd love to go there and drink, but like, I don't just want to eat tin fish, or I don't just want to eat, you know, some olives, or I don't just want to eat, I don't know, uh, potato chips or whatever." Yeah, and that for a lot of these bars that understandably have put minimal investment into culinary programs because it's not really what they're there to do. Is there a a risk that you're going to kind of lose traction because, you know, even if we don't all think of it this way and even if the media doesn't always cover it this way, I do think you can get exceptional cocktails at a lot of restaurants these days. And for a person who says, I want to go have some great cocktails and I want to eat dinner, I don't want to. There's no reason now for people in a lot of places to have to choose between those two. They can have both at the same place. Yeah, I mean, I I think about this for myself personally now at this point in my life and like the idea of going to just one place, like if we go out at all, is very compelling to me versus Mm -hmm. like, you know, what we might have done before, which is going to a bar before dinner and then maybe going to a different bar after dinner, Um, which I, you know, sometimes forget is not really feasible for people who live in other cities that aren't as like, you know, dense as New York where you have to drive between places if you're going to do that. Um, So it's kind of another point in favor for a restaurant having 
a great beverage program kind of all around, um, cocktails being a part of that. Yeah. I mean, I think that is what is the most important in terms of all of this learning is that now it does prove that the cocktail program is essential almost, you know, to a very well-rounded bar program. I mean, sorry, restaurant beverage program for sure. Like, and I think if you're entering the industry now, you have to be aware of them. And I think if you, I think that 10 years ago, people would say like, if you were a professional, it was much more important that you understood wine if you wanted to work in restaurants on the beverage side hmm. than if you then understanding spirits and cocktails. And now I think they're equal, if not more, weighted towards cocktails because that's where the consumer is going to head. That's that's their first instinct is going to be now, what's the cocktail list look like? Then let's let's look at the wines. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that, Zach? I would, and I think it's also a really interesting point, not just for individual, you know, servers and other workers within restaurants, but for operators too to think really about how, you know, what you know the the ways in which you are putting, you know, you're centering perhaps that part of your drinks program a little bit more in your various promotions, maybe on social media, et cetera. You know, making it. I mean, one of my giant pet peeves. This is not exclusive to cocktails, but like making it so that you can. Uh, a person who's a, a prospective diner can easily and and uh, effectively find your cocktail list on your website uh, without having to like work super hard or like download, download it. a bunch of PDFs and scroll through pages. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that you know these as you know you guys were saying like this is a big determine. You know, when someone is just sort of like trying to figure out where they're going to go out to eat and whether it's in New York City and they're confronted with thousands of options or in smaller cities and they might only have dozens, it's still a a huge determinant for people. And yeah, people are going to look at that. In the same way that like we've known for a long time, people look a lot a certain kind of diner looks at the menu and says, Oh, what do I want to eat? And they might make a determination about where to go based on the menu and the specific item they're excited about. Well, some people are now going to be doing that or are already doing that with a cocktail program and saying, like, yeah. oh man, that drink looks great. I know I want to have that to start out. And making that sort of point of connection simpler for people and making that decision, uh, you know, providing the information to make the decision uh, in easier fashion is important. And then, of course, it comes back to this other giant piece, which is super hard, but important to recognize, too, which is um, in the same way that was and still is to some extent true with wine, you know, restaurants have to not just have great drinks and not just have people to make them, but really invest in time and money and staff training, because this is the other point, right? When you start putting cocktails and programs to in place where you are not only you know, creating your own kind of unique cocktails or uh, creating a program that is a little bit more complex and doesn't necessarily offer uh, people just super recognizable drinks. You need to not just make sure that the bar can execute those. Obviously, you need to do that. But you have to remember that for a lot of the people consuming these drinks, and here is a difference between restaurants and cocktail bars, you know, the overwhelming majority of them are going to be made, sent to the floor of the restaurant and drank out of view of and earshot of the bartender. And so if someone has a question, they can't just talk to the bartender the way the way they might be able to if they're sitting at a bar or even mm-hmm. the server at a cocktail bar where you I think have a very safe assumption that that person knows what they're talking about even if they didn't make your drink and it has to be you know the the people on the floor of the restaurant as much as possible have to be conversant in cocktails in spirits and have to be able to kind of explain things to people because as we've ta- also talked about on this pod before like cocktail lists can be complicated and confusing yeah. and it's if it's just a list of ingredients it can be very difficult for people to understand what to expect so i don't think any of these are insurmountable problems for a lot of restaurants but there are things to think about that if they're and if attention is not paid to those details i think the program and the dining experience and drinking experience will suffer i agree yeah mm-hmm. i'd love to hear from 
you know, restaurant operators, if this is something that they're keeping in mind now, um, if, you know, or when this kind of became something to consider for them, um, podcast at vinepair.com. If you're, I want to add one other question for our listeners, especially. Um, and if you guys have thoughts right now, I'm also obviously all ears, but I really want to hear from our, our listeners because we, I know we have lots of people who, who operate in this space. I'm also curious because one of the things that has been true about wine for a long time in restaurants is that wine and wine knowledge and a wine program in a restaurant could offer opportunities to upsell, right? One of the very few in a lot of restaurants, right? Where you're not in a place where you're like pushing an app on someone, but like where you're really trying to be like, hey, you know, here's that bottle, but maybe you'd be interested in this bottle, et cetera. Cocktails are a little trickier because it's not as simple in a lot of cases as just like swapping out a more expensive spirit, although you certainly can do that sometimes. So I'm curious to hear from our listeners uh, if you are thinking about building your cocktail program with pricing tiers in the way that a wine program might be built or your spirits program with pricing tiers as a way to not only capture sales at that whatever the sort of standard cocktail prices these days in your neck of the woods, whether it's 14, 18 or $22 or whatever. But if you're, if you're thinking about ways to capture the special occasion cocktail drinker, et cetera, and how that might look in your programs. Cause I think that's an area where I think we're going to see growth, but I'm not sure what it's going to look like yet. I think, I think cocktails just make so much money or spirits make so much money for restaurants yeah. anyway. But yeah, I, I'd be curious to know about the upselling for sure. But you know what people want more than a lot of money is more a lot of money. Sure. <laughs> True. Sure. Yeah, it's fascinating. Let us know. And are you someone that has, you know, finds that you're discovering new cocktails at restaurants? Mm-hmm. Are you someone that chooses the restaurant based on whether or not they can do good cocktails? Um, yeah, let us know. Podcast at Vampire.com. And we'll be right back on Friday. Yes. Have a good week, everyone. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.